Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today we will hear from Steve Hankey, founder of the Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise at the Johns Hopkins University. He is also director of the Troubled Currencies Project at the Cato Institute and a senior fellow at Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Today he discusses his recent Wall Street Journal op-ed in which he explains why the true cost of President Biden's tax plans are much higher than have been reported. Let's listen in. Tim, you can kick us off. Great, thanks, uh, Nancy. And again, good evening, good afternoon, uh, everyone. I'm very pleased to uh, introduce our speaker for uh, this call, Steve Hankey, who will discuss, among other things, the true cost of uh, the recently passed COVID relief bill, as as well as uh, two other major domestic spending initiatives and proposals that have been made by the administration. Many of you are probably uh, familiar with Steve, who's one of our nation's top economists. He teaches at Johns Hopkins, where he is the co-director of the school's Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise, which Steve, I guess, encompasses everything. So thank you for doing that. Uh, More or less. less. He's also well known uh, for uh, advising uh, countries, particularly emerging markets countries on their currencies and their their monetary systems. Um, and he's also uh, had experience in, in, uh, in the US in uh, the federal government. He was the chief economist for the Council of Economic Advisors under the Reagan administration. And he's also associated with the uh, Cato Institute. Um, he's written extensively as a columnist for uh, Forbes, and he's a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal. In fact, Liz, I think you distributed his op-ed from last week uh, to the group, which was very well done, Steve. Uh, Steve uh, is also, of everybody on the call, probably from the smallest town, uh, and that is he's from Atlantic, Iowa, which, Steve, I think the population is about 6,000. Uh, and uh, and I know that only because it's about 60 miles from where our three oldest grandchildren live. So, Steve, thank you for being with us today. As usual, after Steve's opening remarks, we will take uh, questions. So please let Liz know uh, so you can get in the queue. So, Steve, the floor is yours. Well, Tim, thank you very much. It's great to be with you and, and no labels. Um, as a as an Iowa farm boy who spent most of his life doing economics and not just talking about economics, I find labels problem solvers caucus to be kind of an attractive thing. I mean, I, I like to do things and solve problems, and that's what you learned how to do back in Iowa, Tim. 60 miles from Atlantic, where is that, Omaha? Uh, no, it's it's uh, just southeast of uh, of Ames. Oh, okay, fine. Maybe it's seventy five miles now that I think about it, but yeah. uh, it's in the same zip, yeah. almost the same zip. Anyway, yeah, it's same same neck of the woods. Yep. At any rate, with with that, allow me to start with uh, a kind of a summary of my Wall Street Journal article that that, as Tim indicated, motivated your invitation for me to address you. And it's really an article about the true cost of President Biden's 
first hundred days of kind of, shall we say, a spending binge. I mean, there's really never been anything like quite like it in the United States, but it does fall into a category that is very typical of crises. And every crisis in the United States, and in most countries, by the way, there's something called the ratchet effect associated with a crisis. So you have a crisis, and of course, the government comes rushing in, all the firemen come rushing in and, and uh, propose things and do things, and there's a ratchet in government spending and government programs and new bureaus and new agencies and so forth. But the, as the ratchet implies, these things never really go away. I mean, we, we have many agencies and bureaus in the United States and programs that were instituted in the Great Depression, and there, there's absolutely no need for them or rationale, but we still have them. So the ratchet effect is the order of the day kind of generically, but when you look at the specifics of President Biden's proposals, there was first not only a proposal, but it's been passed and enacted, the COVID-19 relief bill, that was $1.9 trillion with, with a capital T. Now he's proposed an infrastructure program that hasn't been passed yet, and that's $2.0 And in his State of the Union message, uh, he proposed a family benefits plan or package, which would be $1.8 trillion in outlays. So if you add those three things together, you end up with 5.7 trillion in what I call fiscal fakery, because that, that's not really what the real cost is going to be, because you have to finance these outlays with taxes, which the Biden administration, of course, openly is proposing to do. And those have hidden costs associated with them. And the two hidden costs are, one, the extraction cost associated with those, that's the expenditure for administering the IRS and, and, and parts of the Justice Department, too, in case there are legal cases that erupt because of tax problems. So that's the government side of the hidden cost. And, and we, we can see that because at the same time, President Biden proposed the family benefits plan of $1.8 He also said that, that he wanted to increase the budget of the IRS by $80 billion uh, to facilitate the extraction of the taxes, the new taxes that would be associated with those expenditures. The second hidden cost is on the taxpayer side. And of course, you all know what that is. <laughs> you, you've got to comply. In other words, the IRS administers, but, but you, the taxpayer, have to comply. And that's not a costless exercise. You, you got to read the tax code. You got to hire specialists. You got to have accountants, lawyers, insurance companies, and you, you name it. Uh, and if you add both the administrative and compliance costs together, to raise an extra dollar in taxes that the estimates range between about 10 cents and 25 cents per dollar of extra tax collected that is in this hidden cost category of administrative plus compliance costs. But there's another cost 
a, a real big one, and it, it's called, we, economists called it the excess burden, or sometimes they refer to it as a dead weight loss. And that's associated with adding new taxes, and it's the disincentives and distortions that reduce the national income from what it would have been without the tax increases. Now, Martin Feldstein, the late Martin Feldstein, uh, who was actually a chairman of President Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors and, and kind of a, a pioneer and path-breaking researcher in estimating excess burdens, estimated, I think, the best estimate or one of the best estimates of the excess burden is $3 excess burden for every ta new tax dollar that is obtained. Another uh, former colleague of mine and Council of Economic Advisors uh, member, Bill Niskanen, estimated that excess burden at $2.75. So if you add the total hidden cost and the total excess burden cost, you get roughly $3 for each dollar of tax revenue that's obtained to finance government outlays. So that means the true cost has to be multiplied. To get that, you have to multiply any post outlays by three to get the true cost. So the Biden plans, the first three, remember the number was $5.7 trillion. If you add it all up, you multiply that times three and you get $7.1 trillion. Now that's a, that's a big number. <laughs> it's big in absolute terms and it's big in relative terms. In relative terms, to get your head around the thing, it's about 80% of last year's GDP. Now, this this is kind of the, these ideas that I'm giving you, not necessarily the exact numbers, but the idea of the hidden cost and excess, excess burden, this is something that e even the government agencies uh, acknowledge. Uh, Congressional Budget Office, which is bipartisan, they, they know all of this and they, they've written reports on it. Actually, in 1992, the Office of Management and Budget uh, recommended that all government programs just add on an extra 25 cents. That was their total, not, not $3. But they, they did have a number, and they recognized the concept. So this is not, a, not a, an oddball idea or something that, that is unorthodox in any way whatsoever. But that's just the start of the fiscal fakery. Because if you consider, for example, the infrastructure, remember I said that was $2 billion. This happens to be an area that I spent at least, I still spend time doing it, but I would say for the first 20 years of my professional life, I, I was spending all of my time on infrastructure. And that meant Benefit cost analysis. How do you estimate the benefits of, of a new road, a new water project, a, a new hydro station, uh, you, you, you name it? How do you estimate the cost? So this, this is a, a, an exercise that's difficult for public projects because we're not talking about a private test. In a private, in the market economy, if you invest in something, at the end of the day, you, you actually know exactly what's happened because you've got the accounts, you've got the income statement, and, and you know whether you've made money on the thing or lost money on it. This is not the case in, the, in government programs. 
they never look at anything after the fact to actually see if the darn thing has worked or, or, or failed or, or, or what's happened at all. The second aspect of, the, of this that I spent a lot of time on is pricing. How do you price these public pro projects? And most of them in, in, engage in what I call lying prices. They don't price them at all, or they price them at, at way below their cost. And as a result, of course, that encourages a, a lot of excess demand for whatever it is they're producing. The third aspect that I spend a lot of time on is what, what's called federal cost sharing. And that's how much the government, the federal government, is going to share in the cost of the infrastructure. So if you build a, if you build a water facility in Atlantic, Iowa, Tim, and you're paying for it by the federal government, well, if the federal government's paying for that, does that really make any sense that, that somebody out in California is paying taxes to build a, a water treatment facility in, in Atlantic, Iowa? No, the cost sharing rule is that the costs should be shared in proportion to the benefits received. So all the benefits of a local water plant are all local. So they should be paid for by local participants and local users. The federal government shouldn't have anything to do with it if you if you were looking at the economics. So that's the cost sharing thing. And then just to close, I actually uh, am a professor of engineering in the Whiting School of Engineering at Johns Hopkins. And, used to spend a lot of time designing and sizing these infrastructure projects. So one of my actual claims to fame in a way is that if you want to find out the optimal size and diameter for a sewer interceptor, you, you use Hankey's design criteria, which they still use, by the way, in Europe. It's widely used. So at any rate, that that's, that's a little kind of biographical sketch of, uh, of my interest and intense interest in infrastructure. And I can report to you that infrastructure is plagued by cost overruns. The cost overruns on infra public infrastructure run about 50% to 100%. So there's huge cost overruns. There are huge delays. They, they don't deliver these things on time. Now, that has a big effect, by the way, on the benefits and costs. Because if you don't build something on schedule and it comes in years later, well, those benefits that are generated by the thing, once it gets built, if you're discounting those at any kind of interest rate, the, dis the discounted benefits don't amount to too much. So with that introduction, I think it's prudent, Tim, to stop and open the floor for questions. <laughs> Maybe I should have, actually, I should mention one thing. I, I, I it, it was imprudent to stop at that point. I do have one uh, other aspect of this whole thing to, to get into everyone's radar. And that is that there's a, a big debate between the impact fiscal policy and monetary policy will have on the economy. And I am a monetarist, and I'm a monetarist for empirical reasons, and that is that money dominates. If you have, for example, loose fiscal policy and tight monetary policy, what happens? Mon money dominates. Look at Japan. They have tremendous fiscal deficit deficits. The highest fiscal uh, 
debt burden in the world as a percent of GDP, but the money supply has been growing almost not at all for the last 25 or 30 years in Japan. And so as a result, the economy doesn't grow and they have no, they have no inflation. So money dominates. Now, let's come back to the United States. Think about the, the, the most fiscally tight and prudent president we've had in post-war United States is Bill Clinton. He's the only president that actually shrunk the federal government as a proportion of GDP. He actually ended up the last two years of his second term, he, he, he ran two fiscal surpluses. <laughs> the only president we've had that, that done that. Now, what happened? The 1990s, we had tremendous growth. Everything was great. Not because fiscal policy was tight, but because monetary policy was, was accommodative. Money dominates. Get that in your head. Money dominates. Money calls a tune of the course of the economy and course of inflation. But you wouldn't know that today. If you read everything that's being written about, for example, inflation, what do you read about? You read about Larry Summers, former Secretary of Treasury, Harvard professor, who's, who's worried about inflation. Well, why is Summers worried about it? He's worried about it because he thinks they're spending. He thinks his spending binge is, is too excessive. But in fact, it's money that dominates. And I agree with Summers. We, we are going to have much more inflation. And that's because the money supply is exploded. The Federal Reserve isn't interested in money or the money supply, but I am. And the reason I am is that broadly measured, the money supply is growing at 24% per annum right now. And we will have inflation in 2022 and 2023, I think, of at least 4 or 5%. That's much higher than most people think. But it's because the money supply is growing at 24% per annum. And I calculate the optimal rate of growth to hit the inflation target of 2% that the Fed has would be about 6.5%. So it's, so it's growing way, way faster than, than, than that optimal rate. And we, we are seeing, by the way, even now, pickups in inflation. The consumer price index has gone up 2.6%. It's running now. And if you look at the Economist uh, commodity index, the food index over the last year has gone up 50%. Industrial commodities, 104%. And, and metals 103%. Okay, they started with a depressed base. So there's a base effect that distorts the thing. But there's a, a huge amount of inflation that is going on right now and will continue because money dominates. And, and money comes into the picture of these spending programs because the Federal Reserve is monetizing the debt that we are incurring. Those deficits that we're incurring because of this expenditure are, are being almost 100% monetized by the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve buys those bonds that are being issued uh, to, to finance the deficit. So with that, I, I've stretched myself out another five minutes, Tim, but that's it. Thank you, Steve. Uh, uh, I, I had a question on uh, infrastructure, but you opened up a whole new line of uh, discussions. Uh, related to fiscal and monetary policy. I'll save my questions. We, the first 
um, uh, person on the docket is Stamen Ogilvie, and then after Stamen, we'll go to Joel Myers. So Stamen? Professor, thanks very much. And I'd like you to take that next step on the topic with which you concluded and let us know whether we can now lay to rest the foolishness of modern monetary theory, given the uh, rapid run-up in asset prices in the last two years and now consumer and commodity prices right now. Are we going to have to listen to the foolishness of that for much longer? Unfortunately, uh, Stan, I, I did get your first name correctly, didn't I? Yeah, is it Stan Ogilvy? Stan. Stan. Okay. Uh, the, the we we will probably hear a lot of that foolishness. I think it will die away, but it it, it really uh, it, it it's it it is just foolishness. Money money matters, and the quantity of money being pumped up does. A, following thing which you you already hit on it you, you you've got it the money supply accelerates the next phase it takes about six to nine months the next phase is asset prices go up which we've already seen asset prices have gone up then the next thing that that starts cranking up that, that takes a little bit longer to get in the system is the economy itself and it's cranking up and then the last phase in the whole thing is inflation so that, that's the sequence. Money supply surge, asset prices surge, the economy surges, and inflation surges. That's, that's, the, that's the sequence, and, and you, you nailed it. And, and by the time we get to that last stage of inflation, modern monetary theory, I hope they, they put that thing to rest for a while. Thank you. You're welcome. Joel? Well, Steve, thanks for a breath of fresh air. And finally, uh, somebody very articulated the problem we face. And uh, so uh, how do we prevent the end of the republic as we've known it? Because frankly, with that inflation, uh, you're going to have to have higher interest rates. Uh, you, you've got a huge debt. It'll probably be $40 trillion in, in a matter of a few years. Even get six, seven. You talked about five percent inflation requires seven percent or more interest rates. So that means that every dollar the government is now spending at the current levels, I'm sorry, taking in the current levels will be uh, eaten up by uh, interest payments, and all the rest of it just goes to increase the uh, the debt. As long as we can keep financing it, it won't be longer. We'll be with much cheaper dollars, and uh, we're all going to be in deep trouble uh, as, as that unfolds. How do we prevent it? Is there a way? Is there any way, or is it just a runaway train at this point? Well, I, Joel, I, th I think at this point, it strikes me that it is a runaway train. There, there do doesn't seem to be any effective argument or, or holding back on this thing. I mean, e even even the, the the Republican opposition, you know, their their idea is for like infrastructure. Oh, we're you know, infrastructure is a good thing. We need federal infrastructure financing, but you know, not quite as much as Biden wants, which is a which is a very poor excuse because, as I say, most infrastructure is local or regional, and there's absolutely no reason why, if you apply the benefit principle of taxation, that the federal government should be cost-sharing any of this stuff. I mean, I gave my 
little hokey example of, you know, a water treatment plant in Atlantic, Iowa. What in the world is the federal government financing that for? You know, that it, 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 there's so so the Republicans, I, I think, are those those who are questioning whether the Republicans are Democrats. It doesn't really make much difference. Uh, I, I don't think they are using effective or even this excess burden thing that I wrote about. You know, professionals in public finance know this. OMB knows a score on this. The C- Congressional Budget Office knows a score on this. No, no, but no, none of the politicians are making these arguments. So, so that I, I think we're in 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 in, in trouble right right now as, as we speak. It may, maybe the dynamics of things will change. But one thing that will change that you put your finger on, you said eventually. You said eventually interest rates will go up, and 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 that that is coming after the inflation goes up. That's that's a, the the next phase that I didn't give you, and most people are very confused about interest rates. By the way, they think oh if if the if the Federal Reserve is loose, which they are now, that means interest rates are going to be low. No, that means initially they will go low. But eventually, you'll get inflation as a result of the loose monetary policy, and interest rates follow inflation. So interest rates are a very bad indicator for the tone and demeanor of monetary policy. Never look at interest rates to say whether the Fed is tight or loose. You're going to be off base. You look at the money supply. It's the money supply that counts. And the best way, by the way, to do that is to look at the broad measures of the money supply. And there's an outfit that I am associated with called the Center for Financial Stability in New York. And that that is the best place now to get money supply data because the Fed is not interested in the money supply. They've actually reduced the frequency with which they even produce M2, which there is a broadest measure of money. Starting last month, they, they're only reporting this on a monthly basis, not on a weekly. It just indicates even the Fed is not really interested in the money supply. If you, if you listen to uh, the Chairman Paul, what's he been talking about? He's been talking about fiscal policy. The government should spend more. He's not talking about money. Yeah, so when this... Uh all happens when interest rates go up, of course, it's going to make everybody poorer. The value of homes will go down, the value of stocks, bonds, everything. We'll lose our uh, unique status as the reserve currency of the world, which will also all feed on itself and and lead to a terrible decline, I I fear, in the standard of living and the economy. And then there won't even be money potentially to spend on defense. Uh, It's a worrisome situation. And yet, uh, people, I think, will look back on this modern monetary theory as, as the epitome of, of the, the uh, uh, really poster boy for what really did this country in. I, I really worry about it. Well, I, I'm worried about it, too, because right right now we're in a kind of state of bliss, you know, no, no man's land. But as you say, once these interest rates starts going up, Believe me, the, 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 the markets are, are going to go wild. There'll be a, a, a huge correction. It, it is, it's, it's coming. It's obvious, but it, it isn't here yet. We're, 
we're just cruising down the road as if nothing's going to happen. Great, Joel, thanks for your question. Uh, next, we have uh, Gary Sass and then uh, Jan Lindelow. Yeah, thank you, Professor. That was a, an outstanding uh, discussion and it put some of the economic questions into a real phase. But there's one thing I questioned that you said. You said that most uh, infrastructure projects were local. And I look at the externalities of the benefits, the technology, the cost for interstate highways, bridges, airports, broadband, a utility grid, you know, uh, just look what happened with the pipeline, the colonial pipeline. And those seem to me to defy the description of, of, of being local. On the other hand, a recreation facility, a school building, a wastewater system probably meets your definition. So if you could talk a little bit about uh, what type of infrastructure projects are appropriate for national and regional consideration and what really are local? Well, uh, Gary, that's a, that's a good point because in the, in the rules for cost sharing, so obviously I use you know the water treatment plants obviously a local thing but there are obviously things that are regional in nature so so you you've got to look at those and you, those would be financed regionally not 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 nationally so then then you've got to be thinking well okay what what is national I mean even an airport an airport if you, if you use landing fees and user fees to finance the thing I, I don't see you know, okay, it's in a network and so forth. There are linkages, but how much of that is national and how much is regional or local? Uh, again, I would, the only thing I would say, Gary, and this is probably not very satisfactory, is that you have to look at these technical cost sharing studies where they actually look at a project and, 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 and they can pretty much identify, by the way, where the benefits are going to reside. And once they do that, you can come up with the appropriate proportionate cost sharing by level of government, whether it's local or regional or, or state or national or whatever. So it's, it, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit fuzzy, but the, the principle is very clear. But, but exactly what it looks like once you do the study, you'd have to look at each project and, and evaluate it. And you also have to look at the revenue structure because the ability of local governments to tax sometimes precluded by what the federal government tax policy is or what state tax policy is. So when you speak about a, a local project, it may meet your benefit definition, but there's also a complication of how you finance it given the tax system we have. Well, that that's true, but then then every everyone would not go on the benefit principle. They'd go on the ability to pay, and some some poor place would say we we don't have the ability to to pay. We can't build a water plant, so we're not building it, and we'll pass the begging bowl and pass it pass it to the state capital or Washington D.C. or something like that. So that that's the name of the game. Now, now by the way, this you're, this is an important point here. You're getting into. And that is, they, they did studies, uh, the last infrastructure spending of any significance was during the Obama years and the first Obama administration. And, and most of the spending was on highways. And what they found out was it, it had no effect on building highways. It didn't change anything. It just displaced the local and regional funding that was taking place before 
and 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 the Washington funding substituted for what had been regional, and and they didn't build any more roads or fix any more potholes or anything else. The budget for roads stayed the same. Washington just picked up the tab instead of having a state do it or or a regional government. So the, there's a a good study. I I can't remember the date on it, but it's at the St. Louis Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. uh, did a, a quite a detailed study on this, and this displacement effect is also something that you have to consider when you're looking at cost sharing. The question is, are you actually going to get any more infrastructure? And and the answer is maybe not because of this displacement effect. Thanks, Gary. Uh, John Thornton, professor. So my question is this: this is a very practical one. You know, no labels is supposed to be the way I conceive it, uh, a group of public officials who are rather sensible and trying to get serious things done. I'm just curious as to whether or not any of the senators or Congress people associated with no labels uh, are sort of listening to what you're saying and, and taking it on board and doing anything about it. Well, John, the only thing I can say, not, none of them have contacted me personally, if that's what you mean. I, I've had a lot of comments about the article. I, pretty favorable, I must say, so I'm happy with that. But as far as, as the political movers and shakers, I, I, I'm i kind of a, become crusty and skeptic in my old age, if, if you know what I mean. I, they're, they're, going from, they're going from one meeting to the next. They're listening to staff. I, I have talked to one Senate staff group, and, and they, uh, uh, I, I shouldn't say I haven't been contacted by anyone. I've been contacted by one Senate staff office, and and they were kind of tuned in, but but this kind of starts getting out in the weeds and heavy lift for them. They're they're not familiar with it, so so it, it, it's 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 something. What are, what are you going to tell some guy? Go go read a a 50-page monograph on excess burden and go through all the equations and figure out what Marty Feldstein did, you know, and his review of economics and statistics article in 1999, or Bill Niskanen's Dallas Fed study is even a hairier thing. You know, you got to, I mean, even I have to spend a little time looking at the equations to figure out exactly what was going on. <laughs> so that kind of answers your question, I think. Uh, it's it's kind of it's kind of discouraging in a, in a way because it's a simple idea. I mean, anyone can right. figure out to raise a dollar in taxes, extra dollar in taxes. Well, the IRS has to do something, and and you have to do something, and right. and then and then there are all kinds of distortions in the economy. Now, that's a the excess burden part of the thing is a little hard to, for people to get their head around. But if you raise taxes on anything from what they, you, you would get less of it than what you were getting before. And, and, and it turns out that's where the big numbers are. That's where the $3 thing comes in, $3 for each dollar extra revenue earned. Okay, I was afraid, I was afraid this is what you'd say. Thank you. Thanks, John. Uh, Bob Kaplan. Hi, Steve. Well, this is Bob Kaplan. And to qualify myself, I've spent a lot of time at Carnegie Mellon University with Alan Meltzer, so uh, very well familiar with and uh, sympathetic uh, to a monetary perspective and a view of the world. But one of the things that's weakened uh, the predictive power of the monetary policy, say over the last decade, has been the decline in velocity 
uh, of money. And so where the large expansion of monetary base or M2, which formerly would have been associated with inflation, never quite occurred because uh, of the slowdown, you know, in the velocity of money, particularly with the very low interest rates. So, so where are you as to how, uh, you know, if the velocity will start to pick up and then so the inflationary effects of the monetary base will be more quickly transmitted into the economy? Um, yeah, to answer that specifically, I, I, I do think the velocity will pick up, but, but let me, uh, and, 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 and it'll come back, it'll revert to its trend rate, which the velocity, it's on a very steady decline of about two and a half percent per year, a little less than that. So velocity goes down by two and a half percent. That means you have to add two and a half percent more to the monetary juice if you want to hit, hit the inflation target than would otherwise be the case. But, 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 but let me come back to this, your, your fundamental question. And, and of course, Alan was a, a wonderful guy and a, a great personal friend and, uh, you know, wrote, wrote the great three volume treatise on the Federal Reserve. If anyone wants to dig into the Federal Reserve and get in the weeds, Alan Meltzer is, is the guy, University of Chicago Press. Actually, I've got it right here uh, in back of me. Uh, his History of the Federal Reserve, that's, a, that's volume one of Meltzer's book. Actually, that's probably the most complete thing and thorough thing available. So here's, here's what, Bob, the, the problem is. You have to, to, to gauge monetary policy properly and make the right predictions and get the right relationship between the growth and the money supply and inflation and, and, and nominal GDP. You've got to use broad measures of money. And, and the broad measure of money is, is what's something called Divisia M4. That's what, from the Center for Financial Stability. M2 is as broad as the Fed goes. They don't even produce M3 anymore. They, they stopped doing that in, in 1996. So we don't have M3 by the Fed. We don't have M4 by the Fed. But if you look at those broad numbers, what happened in the Great Recession, the reason we never grew very fast and the reason why money dominated was the fact that even though we had quantitative easing and the Fed was, was goosing things, the commercial banks, and, and certainly Tim knows this, the commercial banks were actually contracting their contribution to the money supply. Bank money was actually contracting in 2008 and 2009. And if it wasn't for the Fed doing quantitative easing three times, we would have had a great depression. But in the end, what happened? If you add bank money and, and state money, the Fed money together, that was never growing more than around four to 5%, a very slow rate of growth. And that, Bob, is why we never had inflation. So, so what you said, about M2 not being correlated very well and problems with velocity. That, that Your statement is true. But I would say, Bob, you're looking at the wrong thing on the speedometer. You should have had Divisia M4. If you would have had that on the speedometer and you were the, the chairman of the Fed, you would have said, oh my God, <laughs> the money supply is growing way too slowly. And, and we've got to ease up on commercial banks. It was Dodd-Frank 
those bank regulations were a, a killer that crushed bank money. And, and by the way, most people don't realize most money, most broad money produced in the, in the United States, about 90% of it now, now about 80, 83% is produced by banks. It's produced privately. It is not produced by the Fed. Everyone thinks the Fed is the beginning and end all for everything. That is not true. Commercial private banks produce the biggest bundle of money broadly measured in the U.S. economy. Right now, it's about 83 percent. In 2008, at the start of the Great Recession, it was about 90 percent they were producing. Now, the reason things are going gangbusters, by the way, the Fed is not only increasing state money that they produce, but banks are increasing credit and and the amount of private the private component to the money supply. So we've got both things going full blast right now. And that's why broad measures of money, that Divisia M4 is at 24% now, not at four. When we came out of the Great Recession, it was four. Now it's 24. Thanks, Bob. Uh, uh, Bill Conkler, would you like to go next? Yes, thank you very much. Very enlightening, uh, Professor. You're the canary in the coal mine. Um, as far as I'm concerned on this subject, uh, why is Powell such a weak Fed chairman? I can understand last year when he printed money for COVID, but now he's letting the Democrats bring all the goodies that they've been thinking about for 20 years and, and you know, trying to finance that. If he said the Fed's not going to buy, buy any more paper after such and such a date, it would stop, in my view, it would stop this madness. Well, Bill, that, that's, that's a great question. I would simply observe that he, he, he's coming up for renomination next year. So, yeah. so uh, 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 that, that has something to do with it. Plus the fact that he's trained as a lawyer. He's, he's not a finance man or, 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 or an economist. Now, being an economist or finance man isn't isn't necessarily a badge of honor when it comes to managing a, a, a central bank. But but you've got to realize that Paul actually said about two months ago he said there's no he he, is, he essentially kind of repeated what Bob Kaplan just was telling us. He said, "Oh, there's really no relationship between M two that measure of the money supply." And, and what's going on with inflation. So I really don't pay any attention to M2. Now, here's a chairman of a central bank saying he doesn't pay any attention to the money supply. I mean, this is just un almost unbelievable. But if you look around the world, you find that Christine Lagarde at the European Central Bank is singing more or less the same tune. They all sing more or less the same tune. So you go around the world, and, and none of them are really looking at the money supply. None of the central bankers pay any attention. That is not on their dashboard, the money supply, except one place. There's one place that is orthodox monetarist, China. China, if you look at what they're doing, I figured they're, what their optimal rate of growth and broad money should be. They're hitting the thing, the bullseye almost. And then you look at their inflation target, 
they're hitting that too. That's 3%. The inflation target's 3% in China. So China is, you, you scratch your head and you say, well, why does China seem to be pretty stable and doing pretty well? It's because they know money matters. They know money dominates and, and, and they are following literally a Milton Friedman kind of scenario in their policy. Every, everybody else is, is just not paying attention to it. They're, they're all on this political page, and that is more government spending, more government spending. That's, that's the name of the game. Thank, thank you. Great, thanks, Bill. Uh, Steve, maybe for the last question, I'll take you back to, uh, to uh, infrastructure. And uh, you know, one of the leaders of uh, No Labels is uh, Governor Larry Hogan from Maryland. And, and he has suggested that uh, uh, a good solution to investment in infrastructure is public-private partnerships. Do you have a perspective on, on, uh, on those types of uh, arrangements and, and whether they're they're a, a better solution than, uh, than federal infrastructure spending? Okay, uh, Tim, yes. Uh, the, these are very dangerous operations. There's only one country in the world that knows how to do this, and that's France. France has been doing it ever since the, the kings. <laughs> and and, and uh, I, I've, I've worked uh, a lot in France uh, uh, on infrastructure. Uh, with with all the big French infrastructure companies and and whether whether a municipality is a is a conservative a socialist a communist it doesn't make any difference they all privatize they 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 finance the finance is is municipal it's government but the actual operation of things is all private the design construction operation of, of everything roads bridges water utilities trash pickup all of this stuff it's all it's almost all private. And, and the key to the thing is they have a very sophisticated system of contracts. The key thing in public-private partnerships are the contracts that you have. You have to specify the contracts with great precision. In other words, you've got to, the government has to have somebody smart enough, which they usually don't have. That's a problem. If there's an asymmetric deal with information and knowledge. The private company knows a lot about what they're doing, okay? The government bureaucrat doesn't know very much about it. They write a contract in the United States, and it's rigged in favor of the private company. That's problem number one. That's not a problem in France, because they've got high civil servants doing this. The inspectors of finance in France, that's the most prestigious high civil servant job in France, and, and the pay is very, very high uh, for a, a, an inspector of finance in France. And, and you have to go through the grands they call and have, have the big degrees and everything else to be, to be an inspector of finance in, in, in France. So they, they specify the contract. That's point number one. Point number two, you've got to enforce the contract. You've got to have an inspector of finance looking over the shoulder of the private company, the private partnership to make certain that they perform on their obligations. And as I say, they have a variety of contracts. I, I've written a lot on this. I, I can actually, if you want, any, anybody can send me, by the way, uh, on my email, hanke, H-A-N-K-E, at 
jhu.edu, and I, I've written a, a lot on these French contracts. The U.S. is a disaster, and that's why the cost overruns are so huge in the United States. The contracts aren't specified. They're not policed properly. Uh, the, these, are, these are pork barrel projects from A to Z, and, and you just look at it. I mean, e even if you have... <laughs> If you have a private contractors working on a project, for example, a Davis-Bacon Act comes into play and you've got to pay union wages, even if the private company isn't unionized. So the, the whole, we have a completely screwed up system for infrastructure. It's, it's, it, is, it is not a model. And the private partner thing is, is, is as much as Larry Hogan might be um, you know, trying to thread the needle in a, in a, a, a extremely democratic state, and he does a pretty good job of that, by the way. Uh, it, it's it's just a loser. I mean, you look at it, ask Governor Hogan about any infrastructure projects in in the in, in Baltimore City. What's happened to those over the years? Huge cost overruns coming in way late, way over budget, you know. So I, I, I'm just not, I, I'm not a fan of these at all, except if you, if I am a fan if you do it right. I've been a big advocate and I, I used to be an advisor and consultant for Leonez Desso and Company General Desso, all, all the big French infrastructure companies. And, and I, I'm a very big advocate of the French system, but, but we just don't do it that way. And, and I honestly, I, it's so corrupt. We're, we're getting into the world of corruption now. You, you got to pay to play this, this game in the United States, if you know what I mean. Re remember Mayor Curley in, in Boston, the Curley effect? Now, Mayor Curley in Boston, to, to get anything, Curley talked to everyone, but you had to pay to play. That's the Curley effect. Well, hopefully we uh, will we'll stay away from uh, Curly's, uh, that's for sure. But uh, Steve, thank you very much for your perspectives. I mean, clearly you're, uh, you, you, uh, you have a tremendous amount of experience uh, and, uh, and we really appreciate uh, the uh, thought you provided to us, both as it relates to fiscal and monetary policy, as well as uh, infrastructure. So again, appreciate your time. And I wanna thank everybody else for uh, joining us this afternoon, this evening and remind you all that we have a call uh, next uh, Wednesday uh, at 4 p.m. Eastern time with, uh, with Senator Manchin. And if you haven't uh, RSVP to that, please send us a note. So thanks very much. And again, thank you for your support for No Labels and uh, appreciate your time. Good night. You're welcome, Tim. Good to be with you all. Thank you. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break on No Labels Podcast.